You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. As you have a seat, turn to Isaiah chapter 41. If you use your app on your phone, turn to that app to Isaiah 41. While you're turning there, let me just say it's so good to be with you, Mark. Thank you for accepting my invitation to come. It's been a joy to be with Mark and, and, and the entire staff here over the weekend. And I really wanted to come to tell you again how grateful I am that Christ's Covenant, excuse me, Christ, yeah, Christ's Covenant Church is a part of Sovereign Grace Churches, a part of our denomination. And you as a local church are strengthening the partnership that we share together, which is a gospel partnership. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, your presence here in Monona Lake and Warsaw in this region of Indiana. I'm a native Hoosier, grew up in Marion. My wife grew up in Greentown, Indiana. We're so glad that there's a Sovereign Grace Church in the state of Indiana, but your gospel presence here strengthens us as a denomination. Your faithfulness to proclaim the gospel from this pulpit, to apply the gospel to your lives, and then to do what you're doing this summer, Wednesdays in the park, to reach out with the gospel. Those are all expressions of your love for the Savior and of your commitment to the gospel. And that alone strengthens us as a family of churches as we seek to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. But beyond Indiana, what you're doing in serving sovereign grace, um, and, and, and in particular sending Larry to Brazil a few months ago, as where he probably reported to you that we're planting a Sovereign Grace Church in Sao Paulo, Brazil. You can pray for that. Larry made a huge contribution to that church plant a few months ago. And then recently he traveled to Italy, where we've got, I think, two or three churches that are interested in becoming a part of, of our denomination. And Larry went and cared for them and served them. Those are just expressions of how your church is strengthening our denomination. So thank you, thank you, thank you being a part of Sovereign Grace. That's why I wanted to come. Um, I could go home now, Mark, actually, uh, but we should probably look at Isaiah 41. In these first 20 verses here in this chapter, we encounter some of the most fear-conquering, hope-giving, faith-building truth that you'll find in all of Scripture. And to those that I prayed for a moment ago, to those that are here this morning that are fearful, and are anxious, and weary, and maybe even hopeless, these divinely inspired words will not only be used to comfort you, they will be used, I believe, to embolden you. The title of my message is Fear Not, and this is essentially what we see in these 20 verses. God's activity and presence emboldens the fearful. Isaiah chapter 41 going to read the first 20 verses. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. 
He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who hast performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last I am he. Now the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, I have chosen the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. At all. For I, the Lord your God, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created. May God bless the preaching of His Word. John Adams, who would become the second president of our nation, had gained the reputation of being an effective attorney in the city of Boston in the mid-1700s. He made a risky decision in December of 1770, to defend the British soldiers who had fired their rifles into a crowd of Boston citizens, killing five of them 
in what history now recounts as the Boston Massacre. The British soldiers were charged with murder, and John Adams, in his effective closing argument that led to the acquittal of those soldiers, he said this in a tense Boston courtroom. Facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. I share that quote from a courtroom scene because the context here of Isaiah 41 is that of a courtroom. We know from verse 1 that God himself has summoned all the nations of the world to come and to listen to him in silence. And the language there in verse 1, let them approach like approaching a bench in a courtroom and let them speak and let them draw near for judgment tells us that God has gathered the nations into his courtroom where he will present his truth, and his facts and his evidence and call the nations to make a decision about him based on the facts that he presents. And the reason that God is presenting his facts in this courtroom is found there in verse 1. The reason he has gathered the nations together is for this reason. Let the peoples renew their strength. That's very similar language that you find at the end of Isaiah chapter 40. Where it says in Isaiah 40 verse, uh, chapter 40 verse 31. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Here, though, listening to God present his evidence and making a decision about God based on the facts is another means by which the peoples can have their strength renewed. The question is why? Why did the peoples need to have their strength renewed? Well, even though all of the nations of the world have been gathered into God's courtroom, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, the facts that are presented in these 20 verses are primarily for the nation of Israel, the people of God. See, at this point, the people of God are in exile in Babylon. And as the years of their exile and captivity wore on, they became more fearful and anxious and hopeless. And so God knew that they needed to hear facts. They needed to hear Truth that, as John Adams said, are stubborn things that are immovable and necessary for us to know when we are being ruled by the dictates of our of our passion, as Adams said, in this case is fear and anxiety. Maybe that's you. You arrive here this morning and you're you're saying, I am one of those who needs to have their my strength renewed. Because the troubling situation that you're facing at work, or in your marriage, or in your extended family, or maybe even the uncertainty about your future has created fear and anxiety and maybe a sense of hopelessness in your life. And so if that's you, God is inviting you into his courtroom today. He's inviting all of us into his courtroom to hear his evidence in these 20 verses and make a decision about him and how he works in your life and the purpose of calling you into 
his courtroom is to renew your strength by emboldening you, especially if you are fearful. And by the way, the, the evidence that we will hear in God's courtroom is such God-centered and God-saturated truth because in these 20 verses, you'll note that the personal pronoun I is used 20 different times where God is referring to himself. The phrases like I am, I the Lord, I who, I the God of Israel is used approximately eight times referring to God's presence in our lives. And then phrases like I took, I will, I make is used 10 times referring to God's activity in our lives. See, this God-saturated text is intended to renew our strength by presenting these stubborn facts about God and the act that reveal His activity and presence in our lives in a way that can embolden those that are fearful. So, in this courtroom, we find four fear-conquering truths. Here, here's the first one. First fear-conquering truth we see in this passage, God's sovereign activity. God's sovereign activity. God begins presenting his evidence by asking all the nations that are gathered there a question in verse 2. Did you see the question? Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now, even though he's not specifically identified, we know historically that the one God stirs up from the east is Cyrus, who is the emperor of Persia. The text also gives us clues that this is, in fact, Cyrus, who is known as one who made a complete destruction of his enemies. And so that's why he's described there in verse 2 as one who tramples kings underfoot and makes them like dust. And Cyrus was also knowing for how swiftly he moved with his army to defeat his enemies, which is why he's described in verse 3 as one who passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod, which literally means that he moves so fast it's as, af- it's as if his feet never touched the ground. See, the answer to God's question is very important and significant because Isaiah is writing to the people of God, he's writing to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And as the decades wore on, the exiles became more fearful and hopeless and discouraged. However, this is what we know. Historically, we know that Cyrus will ride swiftly from the east and he will triumphantly conquer Babylon with his Persian army in 539 B.C. When he does that, Cyrus liberates all of the people that are in captivity, including the Jews, and he allows them to return home back to Israel. In other words, this is what's happening here in this text. God announces decades before it would happen that he would stir up one from the east who would come and defeat Babylon and, and, and he would set his exiled people free. Now, note in those 20 verses, Cyrus' name is not even mentioned, is it? In fact, if you study Isaiah, Cyrus' name is not mentioned until chapter 44, verse 28. Because Isaiah wants the people to know, he, he wants them to understand that this work that will be done in their lives is not man's doing, but this is God's activity. 
through God's presence, and therefore, this is God's doing. Now, at this point, we've got to, I want you to be convinced that it is God's sovereign activity that can embolden you when you're fearful through his sovereign activity in your life. And so he does that through one other question that's asked in this courtroom in verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. See, it is God who sovereignly rules the world. And he's saying, I activate who I want to activate when I want them to act on my behalf to accomplish my good purposes and plans, including my plan to set free those who are in captivity and fearful and allow them to return home. You see, in, in these first four verses, we see that God's sovereign activity, it does embolden the fearful. See, God's sovereign activity is a stubborn truth in my life and in your life that tells us this. That the things that you're going through in your life right now, maybe some of you that are in those storms that we sang about earlier, the things that are going on in your life that may be causing fear and anxiety, those things are not random at all. But they're being brought about a God who is sovereign over all. And He's going to use those things for His good purposes and plans in your life. One of the things I do as a pastor back at my church, Covenant Fellowship Church, is I lead a faith and work group, Bible and book study, early on Friday mornings for people in my church who are involved in any vocation. It's wonderful. Its, it's purpose is to equip Christians for all of the issues that you face in whatever vocation or workplace that you're in. And the week that I was preparing the sermon, one of the men in this Bible, Bible and book study by the name of John, he sent me an email and he said this. He said, I prayed for your sermon prep this morning, Mark. I prayed that God would help you to remember that folks like me need encouragement in the things that he has called us to do vocationally and to walk through in a nine to five world that often seems intent on destruction. That God would protect us from fear and strengthen, help and support us in the trials that a good God brings our way. John gets it, doesn't he? He knows that the trials that he is currently facing at work, and he is, he knows those trials are not random, but are sent by a good God. And it's that truth of God's sovereign activity in John's life that will renew his strength. And so he returns to the workplace tomorrow morning with hope and faith that God is with him. However, if you're still uncertain that God's sovereign activity can conquer your fear, I want to point out one other thing in here in verse 4 that I think will conquer your fear and it's a way that God reveals himself to us. Look again at verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Now note the answer. I, the Lord. Described this way. 
the first, and with the last, I am He. This is one verse of many in our Bibles that reveals the self-existence of God, meaning that He has no beginning and He has no end because He always has and always will exist. This theological truth, though, has very practical implications for our lives. Let me just give you one. Here's the implication. God's self-existence means that God is not dependent upon anyone or anything. Michael Horton says it this way, precisely because God is not dependent on anyone or anything He has created, we are assured that nothing will keep Him from fulfilling His promises and being there for us. So, when you are facing trials in your workplace that are being caused by a difficult boss or co-worker, you can be assured that those people will not keep God from fulfilling His promises and what He wants to accomplish in your life. Even when you are suffering unjustly, or those that are opposing you, maybe in your workplace, are using unrighteous or even evil means, you can be assured that your self-existent God will not be stopped. Rather, your God will actually fight for you. That's what it means. Again, Michael Horton. Evil powers never have the last word. You need to hear that again, right? Evil powers never have the last word. God remains qualitatively distinct from, distinct from creation. And this is good news for those to whom the future seems destined to be controlled by oppressors. See, the people of Israel here in Isaiah 41 thought their future was destined to be controlled by the Babylonian oppressors. And yet God, distinct from creation, acted to stir up Cyrus who quickly and swiftly and decisively conquered Babylon and set God's people free. See, that same God is your God, and He will act in any unjust or unsafe or even unrighteous or oppressive situation that you find yourself in. See, do you see how God's presence and sovereign activity can embolden the fearful? Now, did you note here how the nations respond to the truth that they're hearing in God's courtroom? You see that in verses 5 through 7. Look at those again. The coastlands have seen and are actually afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths them, the hammer, who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They hear what God is about to do in stirring up Cyrus, and they are afraid. They deal with their fear by not running to the self-existent God who can alleviate their, their fear, but they rather turn from that God and run to false gods whose very existence, as we can see from the verses, depends upon the work of human hands. And then they foolishly seek to reassure themselves that their man-made idols are good and strong and they will protect them from the Persian 
army. The, the irony here is unmistakable, isn't it? In fear, they turn to the gods who can't relieve their fear, and they turn away from the God who says to them, fear not. It's illogical, isn't it? But here's the reality. We are all prone to do illogical things and to make illogical decisions when we are driven by fear. That's the reality. And it's in those moments that we need stubborn facts. It's in those moments that we need stubborn truth. The stubborn truth of God's sovereign activity that speaks into our fears and points us to God. And he says to us, that storm in your life, I've got this. So fear not. So let me ask you, when you are fearful, when you are anxious, to what or to whom do you turn? Turn to God who sovereignly rules over history, who is the self-existent God who rules in your life and know that nothing will stop His good promises and purposes from happening in your life. Second fear-conquering truth that we see here in God's courtroom. Number two, God's powerful presence. God's powerful presence. Now, in verse 8, clearly from here to verse 20, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. In verse 8, He calls Israel His chosen. He calls them uh, His friend. And, and twice there, in verses 8 and 9, He calls them My servants. There's, there's affection there in those terms, in there, isn't there? And then we arrive at verse 10, and He says to His servants and to His chosen and to His friends, He says to them, Fear not. For, here's why, I am with you. See, God's presence emboldens the fearful because we know this. We are convinced of this, that God is with us. And this fear-conquering truth that not only comforts us, it not only renews our strength, he then goes on to say in verses 10 through 12 how he does help us, how he acts on our behalf, and in this case, on, the, on, the, on behalf of the nation of Israel. Look at verses 10 through 12. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's his help. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. These, these verses speak of God's powerful presence who acts by upholding us, it says, with His righteous right hand, which literally means God has the weapons of righteousness to do the right thing with our enemies. That's what that verse means. And God powerfully, as God powerfully acts, did you note the reversal theme that were there in those verses in 11 and 12? So those who strive against and contend with Israel in such a, a dominant way that they hold them in exile, God says they will be as nothing at all. There's reversal there, isn't there? 
Israel, who is dismayed in Babylon, will see God powerfully act in such a way that he, he sets his people free. And now the Babylonians will be the one who are confounded and dismayed. There's reversal, isn't there? Why, why this powerful reversal? Answer is found in verse 13. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. That word for there that begins verse 13 tells us that it's God's powerful presence in our lives who holds our right hand in the midst of our storms and He turns dismayed and fearful and hopeless people to courageous, faith-filled people. See, these verses are good for us because they remind us that we can have a tendency in the midst of difficulty to make our enemies bigger than they are. But when you live with an awareness of God's presence in your life, when you live with an awareness that He holds your right hand and He will deliver you from your enemies, what happens is that your perspective, your worldview changes so that your enemies shrink down to their right proportionality. Last October, I had the joy of leading the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference, and we had three pastors who traveled from the nation of India. Two of them brought their wives, and I was... I really had the privilege of having just a, a long two-and-a-half-hour lunch with them during the conference. Uh, each of these pastors are in a region, the state of Andhra Pradesh, which is in the southeast part of India. And all of them do face, at times, persecution from Hindu extremists. They told stories that humbled them. If you heard their stories, I believe you would be humbled as well in terms of the persecution they can face, the difficulties they can face at times in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of those pastors, his name is Siraj, and he told a story I hope I never forget. He said that he was in his city, and he was on the public, sort of the public square, sort of the center part of the city, and he was out boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was sharing the gospel. He was calling people to repent and to have faith in Christ. And he finished up his work there and he began to walk home and he, he walked down this desolate street and suddenly he heard some noise behind him and he looked back and there was this crowd of men running after him. And they caught him and they threw him down on the ground and they just began to beat him mercilessly just because he was a pastor sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Sarai said, in that moment I was all alone. In that moment, Mark, I just cried out to God. God, may you send your help. May you send your presence. May you deliver me from these enemies and from this trouble. And he said, Mark, you're never going to believe this. But out of seemingly, out of nowhere, this other group of men, they show up. They pull these other men off of me. They run them off. And, and I was able to continue on. He said, Mark, I've had experiences like that multiple times. And because of God's help and because of God's deliverance and because of God's activity, he said, I'm not fearful to share the gospel here. Oh yeah, I may be persecuted because 
Be, but, but yet, I am not fearful because I know my God is with me. See, I tell you that story because Siraj's God is your God. And therefore, any difficulty that you find in your life, any storm that you are going through, I want you to see from this text that God is there for you and that He holds you by His right hand and He has weapons of righteousness in His, in his right hand that He will used to defeat your enemies. You see, when you view God that way, whatever you're facing, whatever enemies they are, they shrink down to their right proportionality. So in light of what is revealed here in Isaiah 41, in light of God's powerful presence in your life, I must ask you, are you seeing your enemies with their right proportionality? Now there's one other fear-conquering picture that are, that are in these verses that I, I want you to get a glimpse of. And it's found in verses 10 and verse 13. In verse 10, God says this, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So in God's hand, and His right hand is power and might to uphold you by using His weapon of righteousness to do what is right in dealing with the enemies that are striving against you. And then in verse 13, God says, For I, the Lord your God, I hold your right hand. See, these two verses, they, they present this powerful picture of God who holds His powerful weapons of righteousness in His right hand, and in His left hand, He holds your hand. Your right hand. And in light of the Gospel, if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, He holds your hand as a son and as a daughter that He dearly loves. And so with omnipotent, fatherly instinct, your God, He fights for you. See, God's activity and powerful presence, His powerful loving presence, it emboldens the fearful. Third fear-conquering truth. Number three, God's transforming help. God's transforming help. Now note how God addresses His people here in verse 14. He says, fear not, you worm. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait. I thought we were friends. Do you remember that, God, in verse 9? I thought we were friends. I thought we were the chosen. Why worm? Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. God calls them worms, not to belittle them, but to make them aware of their weaknesses and their limitations and by so doing, awaken their need for their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And that, that language, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for the original audience who read this prophecy, it would have conjured up memories for the Jews that were in, in Babylonian captivity. They, they would have remembered how God delivered His people out of Egypt in Exodus. They would have remembered how He delivered them from their enemies at the Red Sea. See, in their time of captivity and exile, God is saying to His people, 
I'm not only your past redeemer, I am your present redeemer as well, so fear not. Now, now note again, the nature of God's help as our redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Look at verse, verses 15 and 16. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. So he's making worms, right? A threshing sledge. New, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. What what this text is saying is God transforms His weak people, which is why He calls them worms, and makes them this powerful threshing sledge that is able to thresh mountains and crush hills and winnow them away in a strong wind. All of that is imagery found in this text intended to convey this truth. That whatever obstacles face God's people, whether enemies or false accusations or oppressors or even our biggest enemy, our own sin, those obstacles will be swept away because God's help transforms the weak and makes them strong. J. Alec Motyer says this in his commentary. Whatever barriers may confront the Lord's people, they are not to be measured in proportion to the people's inherent weakness, but in proportion to the Lord's promise to transform. And certainly the transforming work that God does for His people as their Redeemer, seen in this text, not only points back to his past saving acts, we know that the Old Testament points forward to Christ and points forward to the saving work of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us as our Redeemer on the cross. See, we've got to remember again, brothers and sisters, our biggest obstacle, our biggest enemy was our sin that held us in captivity like like Israel is being held in exile as we awaited judgment and and eternal condemnation. But, But at the appointed time, God the Father stirs up His Son and He sends His Son and Christ steps into our dark and fallen world as our Redeemer and He sheds His blood on the cross for my sin and for your sin conquering its condemning power, granting us forgiveness as we sang earlier, and setting us free from the dominion of sin. See, it is the the cross, that symbol of weakness, that is the place where we see God's most powerful, transforming work that has ever been done in history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, it is the cross where our Redeemer transforms sinners and makes them saints. It is the cross that transforms the vile and makes them clean. It is the cross where our Redeemer transforms the fear of death into hope of eternal life. And by the way, if if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, thank you so much for being here. Many times those who aren't Christians have a fear of death. And if you have that fear, That is a right fear for you to have. Because there is a day coming when 
Either you will die or Christ will return. And there will be a judging of the living and the dead. And on that day, those that are found in Christ will be granted eternal life. And so today, if you're not in Christ, I I would appeal to you to confess your sin, to repent of your sin, and to turn and place your faith in Christ and His finished work upon the cross and in His resurrection on your behalf. If you will call upon the name of the Lord today, the Bible says you will be saved and the fear of death will be gone and you will have the hope of eternal life. See, only our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can transform an enemy who is dead in sin and transform them into a friend, as he says here in the text, who has eternal life. See, here's my point, especially for those of you who are Christians. Here's my point. Whatever obstacle that you are facing in your life that is producing fear and anxiety, this is what the Gospel tells you. The Gospel tells you that you have hope because if God removed your biggest obstacle, obstacle, He certainly has the power to remove the obstacles and the challenges you are facing at His sovereignly appointed time. See, your Redeemer is not only your past Redeemer, brothers and sisters. He is your present Redeemer as well. And He provides for you grace-saturated, transforming help. Do you see how God's transforming help, especially seen in the Gospel, emboldens the fearful? Okay, fourth fear-conquering truth. Number four, God's timely provision. God's timely provision. So we've been in God's courtroom, and there we've heard evidence presented of His sovereign rule over the events of history, including our lives. We've seen evidence presented of His powerful presence. We've just seen evidence presented of His transforming help. And He wants to give us one more truth. Evidence of His timely provision that only He can provide as God, as God who is our Creator. We see that in verses 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness pools of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress and the plain and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created. You see the imagery in the text there? It tells us that in the wilderness, in the desert, which, by the way, the nation of Israel most likely passed through when they were exiled out of Babylon. As they pass through the desert and through the wilderness where there is no easy access to water and there are no trees to provide shade, it's there that the Lord provides pools of water to quench our thirst. And if you note, seven different kinds of trees where we can stop and rest in the shade. The point of those verses is that Only God 
can truly refresh the poor and needy who are fearful and anxious by providing in ways that only He can provide. Keep, keep in view. Keep, keep remembering the purpose of this courtroom scene. We see it in verse 1. The purpose is so that the peoples can renew their strength. Contextually then, God is speaking to His exiled people in Babylon and, for, and as exile ran on for decades, they were fearful. They were anxious. They were hopeless. And as a result, they were weary. They were exhausted. They wanted to give up. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're going through a prolonged trial right now. Or you've been through a prolonged trial at some point in your life. There's there's nothing like trials, especially prolonged trials, that can tap you. Bring anxiety and fear. Quite frankly, we all get physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted. Maybe some of you are here and you'd say, boy, my my soul feels like this wilderness and desert described here in these verses. We all get in that place at times. Let's be honest. If that's you, your soul is dry. Don't miss what you're to do with your exhaustion and your dry soul. It says there in verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water, I, the Lord, will answer. That language is similar to what Jesus says in the New Testament to those who are spiritually dry. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Today, if your soul is tired and exhausted, if it feels like a desert, seek Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. He will refresh you with His living water. To the tired and to the exhausted Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, Jesus, will give you rest. Today, if you're, if you're burdened, if you're weary, if you're fearful, if you're hopeless, seek Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Come to Jesus, and He will give you rest. Do you know why we're to do this as Christians when we are in need? Verse 20 answers the question that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. See, as Christians, we're not to be these perfect specimens who are never fearful. Because brothers and sisters, there's times when I am. And there's times when you are. We're not to be people who walk through this fallen world pretending that we aren't hopeless and exhausted at times because if we were all honest, we all would say there are times we are. What are we to be then? We're to be what this text tells us to be. We're to be servants and friends of God. And worm. 
from those who at times are poor and needy, but also people who have seen the evidence in God's courtroom. And because of those stubborn truths, those stubborn facts, we are people who fear no evil because we know that God is with us, powerfully working on our behalf, knowing that even when we are exhausted by our trials, that He will never let us go because He's holding our right hand, knowing that whatever happens in our lives, our God is there with us, and He's fighting for us, and He's working on our behalf, and He's doing it in such a way that all will see and know that through our lives, this is God's work in our lives. And so through our lives, He receives all the